1.3 million children refugees in just over two weeks. It is the, in speed and, and scale, the biggest refugee crisis we've seen since World War II. Welcome to Radio Davos, the podcast from the World Economic Forum that looks at the biggest challenges and how we might solve them. This week, Ukraine, we hear about the plight of people fleeing the war. It's this heartbreaking journey that they're all making and that to a person, none of them want to. We get the latest from UNICEF and we look at the vital energy situation in Ukraine. Their life depends on it. Currently, it's minus temperature in Ukraine. The Ukrainians need heating. They need electricity as well as water and food and medicine. In terms of the big cities in Ukraine, people are left without these critical supplies. The World Economic Forum hosted energy company leaders and officials from inside Ukraine and around the world to hear what can be done to keep the lights on for the people of Ukraine. We are working on the faster possible route for securing the supply of energy in these terrible times for our country. Restoration of destroyed and damaged infrastructure of the energy sector and more. Subscribe to Radio Davos wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a rating or review and join us on the World Economic Forum Podcast Club on Facebook. I'm Robin Pomero at the World Economic Forum and with this look at Ukraine, its child refugees and the energy crisis for the people who remain. Look, so much of it is is what your, your audience is seeing in the airwaves. It's, it's harrowing. This is Radio Davos. It's hard to know where to start talking about Russia's invasion of Ukraine and the impact it's having. But we're going to try. And in this episode, we'll look at how Ukraine's energy sector is coping, keeping heat and power to millions of traumatised people. Before that, though, let's talk about those people. To get an idea of the humanitarian crisis, I spoke to James Elder of the United Nations Children's Agency, UNICEF, who'd just returned from the city of Lviv. I asked him what he'd experienced there. Look, so much of it is is what, you, what your, your audience is seeing in the airwaves. It's it's harrowing. Uh, where I was in Lviv, in the west of Ukraine, that had been relatively safe until the weekend when we saw missiles rain down there as well. You're looking at hundreds of thousands of people going through that city. Every single one of them has a story of, of heartbreak. They're stressed. They're sad. Uh, it's I, I spend every day at the train station watching husbands and wives farewell each other, fathers sort of get down on their haunches and explain to their sons and little daughters, you know, why they're going to a country they've not heard of and why daddy staying behind. And that's those families at that point. It's taken them usually three or five days to get to that point through freezing conditions, nights in bunkers or worse, makeshift bunkers and basements. So it's this, it's this heartbreaking journey that they're all making and that to a person, none of them want to. And that, of course, They're the ones fleeing, the the mind-boggling 1.3 million children fleeing. That's even before we think about those people who are who are unable to get out of the country for whatever reason and are still trapped in this, you know, sea of indiscriminate fire. So that that's a number. I was just about to ask you then, what are the latest numbers in terms of displaced people or refugees and anything else you can tell us, particularly about children, which is what your agency focuses on? Yeah, so the latest figures now, they'll change. If someone listens to this tomorrow, they'll change. Is, is 2.7 million people are now refugees. And that half of that, we say half, so just over 1.3 million children. Now, numbers can obviously just be, as I say, mind boggling. And, and I don't think compassion often goes, doesn't go hand in hand always with big numbers. But to, to give a sense, I mean, that's 
1.3 million children refugees in just over two weeks. It is the in speed and, and scale the biggest refugee crisis we've seen since World War II. And as I say, every single one of those children has a story. Now, countries, those border countries are welcoming with open arms, but it's impossible to meet the needs with that speed right now. Um, the psychological trauma these kids have gone through, as I say, they're, they're all seeing war. They've been hiding in bunkers. They're, they're watching families split up. So there's an enormous need for psychological support, for trauma support, beyond and above the need for indiscriminate fire and for the war to end. But UNICEF is humanitarian. We're, we're there left picking up the pieces. Um, but it's an immense number. It's growing. It's growing every single day by tens, 50,000. Um, and they need every kind of support you would imagine, from safe water to psychological support to safety back in Ukraine from the missiles that keep raining down. Now, you've seen these kinds of situations before. How does this one in Ukraine compare to other places in the world where UNICEF has had to work? Yeah, it's a good question. You know, I was recently in Yemen, and there we had again this horrendous number of 10,000 children killed or maimed in that conflict. And that continues. And, and children keep dying in Syria or in Ethiopia and the Horn of Africa. So as an agency, UNICEF, we are multitasking. You know, the focus, global focus is here, but but our focus continues to be on those places. But to be specific, I've not seen something, again, with the speed and scale of this. Uh, and that makes it very difficult to, to respond to. So in terms of just sheer numbers in two weeks, uh, it's immense. As I say, UNICEF, we're still deeply concerned and operating for those children in Syria. The Syrian refugee crisis, I think, was around just under 300,000 Syrians became refugees in the first 18 months of that crisis, of that conflict, just over 10 years ago. 300,000 in 18 months. We hit a million children in less than two weeks. That gives you a sense of the scope of what these, what these families, what these children what the neighbouring countries and of what UNICEF is trying to deal with. And what response needs to happen now? Yeah, first and foremost, that response is to keep pushing as much as anyone can for the war to stop. And then it's an enormous response in country because there are many children who cannot flee. So a big, you know, UNICEF has now got in another 100 tonnes over the weekend of things like emergency medical supplies because there are, you know I saw children in hospitals in ICU in incubators they cannot leave or at least it's very it's much more complicated and dangerous for them to leave so these emergency medical supplies that UNICEF gets in surgical equipment you know midwifery equipment because mums having babies in bunkers and makeshift makeshift maternity wards that kind of supplies that UNICEF is getting in are life-saving, getting them to Kiev, getting them to Kharkiv, getting them into Lviv, uh, where I just was, that's essential. And then for those millions now outside of the country, and it will unfortunately, you know, it looks like it may be millions more if the war doesn't stop. Psychological help, child protection, tracking and tracing, which UNICEF does well, but is an enormous ask. We're very worried about trafficking right now, given the scale. Education. You know, you're looking at a million refugees in Poland. These kids need some normality. That goes hand in hand with trauma support. And then the basics, water, sanitation, be it for those countries absorbing such huge amounts 
all those people in in the east of the country, say Mariupol, who've been cut off from fresh water uh, for days on end. Are you as an agency able to get into places like that? Yeah, we, we were recently doing water trucking in Mariupol, but it's not to the scale we need because every time there's talk of a humanitarian corridor, it's broken. Every time civilians feel that they can go down a corridor, there, there's, there's, there's attacks again which makes it very difficult. We want civilians out and agencies like UNICEF to go in. So, yes, we're maintaining a footprint in every area we can, including active active uh, conflict areas, but not to the level we want to because, again, those humanitarian corridors have not been respected. What about long-term? Do you foresee there'll be a time when these millions of people will be able to go back to their homes? Yes, I, I go from what Ukrainians say to me and of the hundreds of families, usually mums and children who are good enough in their moments of deep stress and sorrow to talk to me as they were leaving, I did not speak to a person who did not want to be back. They wanted to be back in their words, you know, a physio who wants to be with her, her patients, you know, or a teacher with her students or a daughter with her dad. Everyone wants to be back. Um now, will the security and safety of the country, again, outside of UNICEF's mandate, but to talk to those people in terms of what the, the, the refugees, they want to return. They would like to return tomorrow. In their eyes, they certainly see themselves back in a couple of months. James Elder, spokesperson for UNICEF. To talk about the energy situation in Ukraine, I'm joined by Kristen Panarelli, who's head of energy at the World Economic Forum. Kristen, you convened a very important event a few days ago at the World Economic Forum online. Tell us what it was and why you did it. Yeah, we convened a special roundtable on Ukraine's energy crisis. Um, we did this to to bring together chief executives and and senior leaders from academia and civil society to to hear directly from Ukrainian leaders on their immediate needs regarding the power and the energy situation, and especially the efforts to maintain electricity and heat for the people of Ukraine. And I I think what was special about this event was that it was really bringing together the global energy sector with the policymakers from Ukraine that are so impacted by what is going on. Yes, and we'll be hearing you actually had people on that call, a Zoom call, with dozens of people on it around the world. You had people from Ukraine, including an energy minister and people working on the ground in the energy sector. We'll hear from them and we'll hear what it's like to be in a massive country like Ukraine, which is now a war zone. Are the lights still on? Is there still heating on in this country, which is very cold right now? We'll be hearing about that. But let's start by hearing from Boga Brenda, who's president of the World Economic Forum, This is Borger Brenda setting out the scene for this meeting. I think it's a very uh, special moment. Uh, Who would have imagined that there would be war again in the middle of Europe in the 21st um, century? As you have seen, the World Economic Forum has condemned the aggression uh, by Russia against Ukraine. And uh, our full solidarity is with Ukraine's people and all those who are now so terribly suffering innocently from this totally unacceptable war from Kharkiv to Mariupol to Odessa, uh, also in Kiev. 
Burger Brenda of the World Economic Forum introducing this session that Chris and you convened a few days ago. The next person we're going to be here from is the Chief Executive Officer of Naftogaz. Yeah, Naftogaz is Ukraine's largest state-owned company and leading enterprise in, um, in, in energy. So they operate in the full cycle of oil and gas activities. And we're going to hear from the Chief Executive of Naftogaz, Yuri Vitrenko. The energy sector of Ukraine that is vital, is critical for Ukrainians because their life depends uh, on it. So currently it's uh, minus temperature uh, in Ukraine. Ukrainians need heating, they need electricity uh, as well as uh, water and, and food and medicine. And unfortunately, as we speak, in some other big cities in Ukraine, people are left without these critical supplies, like the city, for example, of Mariupol, of roughly 400 citizens. Uh, and uh, it's already a humanitarian catastrophe over there. Yuri Vitrenko, the chief executive officer of Naftogaz in Ukraine. Kristen, tell me about the next speaker, who's the head of DTEC. DTEC is the largest private sector electricity company in Ukraine. So they generate electricity through solar, wind, and thermal power plants. They distribute and supply electricity to households, and they also produce coal and natural gas. So Maxim Timchenko is the CEO of DTEC. And this is Maxim Timchenko telling us how they're coping. DTEC is one of the uh, major uh, power producers in the country, and basically we do whatever we can to keep our energy system in stable operation. As of today, we keep production of coal and natural gas at pre-war level. Uh, today, we, uh, 19 power units is in operation, uh, producing about 20% of electricity in Ukraine. And basically, we are quite confident that as of today, because situation is changing every every day, uh, we, we keep, keep going the same level of stability uh, and with uh, our uh, nuclear uh, company, Nergatam, we'll keep uh, operating our energy system in proper way. And this is Yuri Vitrenko again, also talking about how he sees the energy situation on the ground in Ukraine right now. In most parts of Ukraine, uh, we are uh, able to provide um, heating, uh, be it individual heating or centralized heating. And just to remind, 90% of Ukrainian households depend on natural gas as a source uh, for heating. Um, uh, so currently we have enough of our own production, uh, gas and storage and some imports uh, to provide, again, uh, the nature of the resource uh, for our consumers. But the problem is uh, in many um, areas in Ukraine that are on the front line, that the uh, uh, Russian army is deliberately targeting some civilian infrastructure. Uh, so they're destroying centralized heating plants, uh, they're destroying some distribution uh, gas networks uh, uh, that are used to, to supply gas uh, to the cities. That's why they're left without uh, uh, heating and in, in many uh, cases without electricity. Uh, also, uh, logistics is damaged. So um, uh, Russian army blocked all the ports that are used uh, to import coal, that are used to import crude, that are used to import uh, oil products. Um, uh, railway uh, logistics is also limited and their bottlenecks, uh, uh, sometimes it's uh, deliberately targeting by, by the Russian army. Uh, a similar situation with roads. So uh, that is why it's becoming more and more difficult 
um, to deliver, again, coal, to deliver uh, oil products uh, um, to Ukrainians. So, Kristen, at this event, were there certain things that those Ukrainians were asking from the rest of the world? Well, I heard two very concrete asks. One was very practical, and, and this is you know, a real direct ask for materials in order to help support um, the energy infrastructure and security of supply. So really practical things like equipment um, from from wires to to generators to protective equipment for their workers. And and the other asks were were a bit less tangible and were more focused on some of the geopolitical and economic issues. Um, for example, I mean, the primary ask, which we'll, we'll hear from, from several of the leaders on this, is, is to embargo oil and gas from Russia. Well, let's hear from Yuri Vitrenko again, the chief executive of Naftogaz. On the one hand, there is, of course, uh, a military help that is needed uh, for the Ukrainian army to defend uh, Ukraine, to defend the Ukrainian people, to defend the free world, I would say. Um, at the same time... Uh, Sanctions are needed uh, as well uh, because they help uh, changing the calculus of uh, Putin's uh, regime so that they understand that uh, the West is no longer soft, the West is no longer appeasing uh, the aggressor, and the West is um, ready to confront and contain uh, Russia. If Putin understands it, then uh, he will make this decision to stop the war. Kristen, we'll come back to the sanctions a bit later. Let's hear now from the Deputy Minister at the Ministry of Energy in Ukraine, Yaroslav Demchenkov. This is how he framed the war. Russia is destroying our life, our land, our infrastructure, but they will never destroy our internal unity and freedom. And I believe it will never destroy the alliance among Ukraine and our Western partners. For more than two weeks, we held the battle of one of the biggest armies in the world. But Ukrainians defend not only Ukraine. Today, we defend the values and principles on which the democratic world was built after the Second World War. I urge you to see the reality of the situation. Russia wages this army against the West, against democracy, against liberty, against humanity. And Putin will not stop until we stop him with force. Yaroslav Demchenkov, the Deputy Energy Minister of Ukraine. This is what he had to say about the way Ukraine's energy system is functioning now. In these extremely hard conditions, the Ukrainian energy system keeps working providing energy for people, industry, and the military. The situation is really very critical. But I can assure you that Ukrainian energy professionals are doing a great job to keep our energy infrastructure functioning. We are working on the faster possible route for securing the supply of energy in these terrible times for our country restoration of destroyed and damaged infrastructure of the energy sector and more. Yaroslav Demchenko, the Deputy Energy Minister, also spoke about the potential risk to the nuclear plants, the civilian nuclear power plants in Ukraine. The biggest threat that could affect 
all of Europe is nuclear. Russia has control uh, and crossed all red lines, is acting as a nuclear terrorist. We all are afraid of a nuclear war. And now, for the first time in history, we have a major war in a country with over a dozen nuclear reactors and thousands of tons of radioactive spent fuel. Ukraine operates 15 nuclear power units, including six at U Europe's biggest nuclear power plant in Zaporizhia, which also has an open air spent nuclear fuel storage. But we have to realize that Russia has already started it when it captured the Chernobyl and Zaporizhia power plant. Every day, Europe is balancing on the edge of nuclear disaster due to the Russian actions. Yaroslav Demchenko, the Deputy Energy Minister, talking there about the threat, potential threat to nuclear plants. And it was very interesting, Kristen, to hear also from someone from Japan, which is more recently than Ukraine. Ukraine's been the home to Chernobyl, which had a meltdown infamously in the 1980s, Fukushima in Japan, exactly 11 years ago when these people were talking a few days ago. Who is this speaker we heard from Japan? Mr. Tatsuya Terazawa is the chairman and CEO of the Institute for Energy Economics in Japan. And this is a top energy and environmental think tank based in Japan. Um, Mr. Terasawa, in fact, is a former official from Japan's Ministry of Economy, Trade, and Industry. And um, I think that his words are, are were really powerful. Let's hear what he had to say. All the people in Japan are sent together with our friends in Ukraine. And uh, today, March 11th, uh, is a special day for us. Exactly 11 years ago, uh, the Fukushima uh, nuclear accident uh, took place. And it was caused by a tsunami, a natural disaster. But it is quite unfortunate that this time, another nuclear disaster can be caused by human deeds. So it makes us very, very much worried. And uh, especially the Fukushima, as you know, the nuclear accident was caused by the loss of power. A loss of power was caused by the tsunami. But this time, a military attack can at any point uh, dysfunctionalize uh, the power supply of the nuclear power plants in Ukraine. We are extremely worried. And it was a miracle, sort of hindsight, a miracle for us to be able to stop that nuclear accident from going out. But with the lack of staff in Ukraine, in the nuclear power plants, once there is a power shortage, I'm not quite sure if we can really stop them. So um, I'm worried about the Russians' objective. What are they doing to try to secure the safety of nuclear power plants? They should be concerned about safety as well. And what can we do, or any one of us can do, to stop the nuclear accidents to, to, to take place in Ukraine, which would affect other countries in the world? Tatsuya Terazawa of Japan. And Kristen, we also heard from someone from the trade union movement. Who was that? Ati Hoy, the general secretary of the Industrial Global Union. And, and that is an organization that represents 50 million mining, energy, and manufacturing workers from, from over 140 different countries. I think it's the largest 
sectoral global union in the world. We're in constant contact with all of the industrial workers and energy workers in Ukraine who are members of the trade unions in Ukraine. And uh, I just minutes before this meeting got a message from the uh, workers uh, who live in um, uh, Slavitych uh, outside Chernobyl, who work for Chernobyl. And they have said to, to us that they haven't had energy in their city for three days. They haven't had food supply for 10 days. So, I mean, this has also a, an incredible impact on the security of these plants. Uh, I mean, as the previous speaker said, if you don't get energy to uh, to the plant itself and and uh, where you keep the uh, remains of, of the nuclear uh, waste, then you can foresee a terrible tragedy. So. I think we also need to have the perspective of those who are doing the work in the plants here and, and they're also living through a terrible situation which um, impacts uh, the security of these plants. Sobering comments about the nuclear plants in Ukraine. Let's move on, Kristen, to what we touched on a little bit before, sanctions and oil embargoes on Russia. Let's hear again from the minister about what Ukraine wants from the West and the rest of the world. We urge the international community to find a way to force Russia to withdraw troops from nuclear power plants, to establish at least a 30-kilometer demonetarized zone around our nuclear power plants, to establish no-flight zone over Ukrainian nuclear stations, ensure normal work of the staff, giving them the opportunity to have a rest. Please. Make sure this, make sure that you use all the tools available to you to urge the decision makers to act, act swiftly and strongly. Every day of delay is increasing the risk of an accident and potential nuclear catastrophe. We must continue and increase pressure through sanctions. A strong package of sanctions should be directed against the oil and gas revenues of Russia. This they must include, one, full ban of import of crude oil and petroleum products from Russia produced from it. We are convinced that the price of world market will fall and Europe will be able to get it from other sources. Two, embargo of the supply of Russia LNG to the EU and the Euro United States. Three, restrictions of pipeline gas supply uh, similar to the iron sanctions. Four, binding up of joint projects with Russian energy companies, preventing financial institutions from providing funding for such projects. And five, freezing Russian energy assets in the EU until Russia fulfills the escalation conditions. We yeah. also ask for European and American companies and communities stands in supporting the energy independence of Ukraine. We are very dedicated to complete emergency synchronization of our electricity grid with the Association of European Energy Networks, ENSOE. We are working 24-7 to make it happen. One of these days, we expect a final decision of our emergency 
connection. Well, he was talking at the end there about connecting Ukraine's grid to that of Western Europe. Kristen, can you tell us any more about that? Yes, plans have been underway for some time to synchronize with the European grid, but this timeline needs to be accelerated. We're hearing from Volodymyr Kudrinsky, who is the chairman of the transmission operator Ukrainergo in Ukraine. We started this project of uh, interconnection with European continental grid in 2017, the active phase of it. And since then, we've managed to do a lot of things. Uh, specifically, we've invested as a country, as a grid operator as well, we, in, we invested hundreds of millions of euros to refurbish uh, our grid, our generation facilities. And we passed a lot of uh, technical steps and tests uh, before we had to start one of the final and most complicated tests, which is disconnection from Russia and Belarus, and to operate for a few days in so-called islanding mode. It was scheduled for 24th of February, and uh, just three hours before the war started, we, uh, we've, we have disconnected from Russia and Belarus and started operating in an island mode. There were a lot of reservations that we would not be able to operate safely and stay in a stable way. But uh, these uh, days, this uh, more than two weeks now, they demonstrate that Ukrainian power system is resilient, is very stable. We had, uh, we've had our hard times when, for example, Russian take has, has have taken over Zaporizhia nuclear power plant and we had to disconnect two nuclear units in 10 minutes. But uh, again, we've managed to, to perform in a stable way and to, to balance the grid. So now uh, we, uh, we are uh, progressing with our partners from NSOE on so-called emergency synchronization that we requested in the end of February. We requested it because, of course, in this situation, in this unpredictable uh, circumstances, we really need to have a possibility of uh, power supplies from big system, which is European continental grid. So those last two speakers mentioned an organization called ENSOE, which is the European Association for the Cooperation of Transmission System Operators for Electricity. The head of that organization was on the call. Let's hear from Hervé Lafaye. We are accelerating um, with this emergency yeah, synchronization all the steps that uh, were supposed to, have to, to happen uh, until 2023. So this is why we're calling that an emergency uh, synchronization. And this synchronization, it will improve the resilience of the Ukrainian and Moldavian uh, systems uh, in terms of stability and also provide the possibility to some backup of energy delivery to the systems. And Kristen, we also heard from Fatih Birol during this session. He's the head of the International Energy Agency, the IEA. Yeah, and in fact, the IEA has been very active over the past couple of weeks, and they came out with, recently with a 10-point plan for the European Union to reduce their reliance on Russian gas supplies. And, um, and yeah, what he, what he has to say is, is taking it a step further from the 10-point plan. Globally, I believe uh, we have two main immediate challenges. How to maintain the uh, global energy security, but at the same time, how to minimize, if not nullify, the Russian energy revenues. How to uh, bring uh, this uh, two together. 
The issue is, uh, dear colleagues, Russia is today the number one top oil exporter of the world and top natural gas exporter of the world. And with these events, uh, I believe we may well be entering a period of a, a major energy shock, which could be compared to what we have seen 1970s, which could have impact on the global economy and the pushing the inflation significantly up. Fatih Birol, head of the International Energy Agency, and he's someone who's talked about the energy transition as well, and that's something we'll be coming back to on a future episode of Radio Davos. Will the crisis in, in Ukraine slow down or speed up the transition away from fossil fuels? Um, this, Kristen, if you'll allow me to draw a conclusion here, let's go back to the person we started with, which is Burger Brenda, the president of the World Economic Forum. This is what he had to say about a chat he had with Ukraine a year ago. 2021, we had an energy roundtable um, on uh, Ukraine with the prime minister and we discussed Ukraine's efforts on the development of renewables. Uh, I think the prime minister called it freedom fuels. That was the renewables. I kind of like that um, way of uh, putting it, a modernization of the power grid and also to increase energy efficiency, but independence uh, through also freedom fuels, as uh, the Prime Minister uh, coined it. Today, we really live in a different world, and um, we know that uh, we will have to also now discuss how can we um, also use this as an impetus uh, to also uh, support uh, Ukraine's population, but also uh, um, how can we uh, become more um, energy and gas uh, and fossil fuel independent uh, in Europe? Burger Brenda, Kristen, if people are listening to this and want to know where to get more information, where should they go? They can come to our website. We have uh, contact information on there so that um, you can reach directly out to DTEC or to Naftogas and to the other stakeholders and respond to their request um, for very specific materials and, and supplies that are needed in order to keep the lights and the heat on for the people of, of Ukraine. Helping me listen back to that energy roundtable on Ukraine was Kristen Panarelli of the World Economic Forum. The website is weforum.org. Please subscribe to Radio Davos wherever you get your podcasts, leave us a rating and a review, and join the conversation on the World Economic Forum Podcast Club on Facebook. This episode of Radio Davos was written and presented by me, Robin Pomeroy. Studio production was by Gareth Nolan. We'll be back very soon, but for now, thanks to you for listening, and goodbye. Goodbye.